Have you ever dreamt of building an app that impacts the daily lives of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, now it's your chance with Monday.com. Monday.com is a teamwork platform. It is really beautifully designed to manage pretty much any team, organization, or process online. It is super easy to use, and I must say very, very flexible. Monday.com just launched a contest to develop apps for the 100,000 teams that use it for their daily work. The Monday Apps Challenge is bringing developers around the world together to compete in order to build apps that can improve the way teams work together on the platform. And whether it's to help marketing, construction, sales, software developers, or anything in between, they are looking for out-of-the-box apps to include and definitely feature in their apps marketplace. And of course, there's something to win. Yes, because the prizes are insane. Check it out at monday.com slash data science. That's monday.com slash data science. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. I really want to thank you to be here, also to join the uh, the Discord channel, which is our official channel for um, exchange some words um, about previous episodes and also the new ones and also propose uh, the new topics that you would like me to speak about. In this episode, I would like to talk about something that is at the intersection between search and uh, NLP, natural language processing, due to the fact that search has become, as we know, one of the biggest activities that we are doing as human beings uh, today, but also one of the most profitable uh, activities that that businesses uh, are running today. And uh, uh, with this, of course, we do not only consider Google as the biggest search engine in the world, but also uh, the many other domains and, uh, for example, in the in the field of uh, online shopping, uh, but also education, Wikipedia, Amazon, uh, people search for music and, and many other items on the internet. And so search has become, in fact, the uh, one of the most prominent activities that people do. And uh, uh, depending on which domain you are, um, there are some methodologies that better fit or better suit the that particular domain rather than others. Now, the reason of this um, episode is because very recently I've been reading about um, uh, something called neural search um, that has, uh, you know, has intrigued me as always, but also it has been again uh, published with the attempt of uh, convincing, at least that was my uh, understanding, convincing people that um, neural search is the way to go, uh, in and will actually overtake the you know the traditional, the more traditional methods that we are used to, uh, that is probably so-called symbolic search. Uh, I will try to shine more light on the on the subject, and uh, of course, uh, to do so, we need to start from the very beginning, which is what is the actual state of the art in the, in the matter of search. Uh, so when it comes to search, uh, there are 
of course, I'm, by search, I mean domain-specific search, uh, search engines, not just Google. Google is kind of a general purpose search engine, right? Um, in domain-specific search engines, I uh, usually refer to, for example, online shops, right? So these are all the places where you search for something that is quite detailed and quite specific to um, to to your to that particular domain. So, for example, if I am on a, an online shop and I'm trying to purchase some t-shirts, you know, the type of search that I perform on that particular website is going to be something that describes a t-shirt in every possible detail. And so I'm looking for a t-shirt that is eventually uh, white and uh, it's uh, sleeveless. And so, and you know, I can go down and down with characteristics that are more and more detailed. So symbolic search in this particular scenario, um, you know, is usually referred to as um, having some sort of key value pairs that identify and specify that particular item almost uniquely. Uh, and so, for instance, in the example that I just gave, uh, searching for a white sleeveless T-shirt, uh, how can I represent this information? Well, uh, usually as a dictionary in which you have keys and values, the key is identifying or specifying a particular characteristic of the T-shirt, of the item. And so, for example, the color, and then the value is going to be white. And then we have the category key that is probably a T-shirt and the type key that is sleeveless. So you have three keys, color, category, and type, and three values related to each key, which is white, t-shirt, and sleeveless. Now that's the way we do that, right? That's the way, you know, we transform the, um, the item from the real world into something that an algorithm can process and eventually search in a database, okay? Now, Symbolic search is, as I said, in the sense that every key value pair is considered a symbol. This is not math, you know, in the mathematical terms, it's a completely different story. Symbolic computation is a completely different story. But in this particular scenario and, and uh, subject, in fact, uh, symbolic means that we have uh, identified some symbols that better characterize that particular item. The problem of this type of representation is that, well, if I am uh, searching for some shirt rather than a t-shirt that is not white, but is broken white, and uh, that is not sleeveless, but it has, it is without sleeves, right? Or, uh, or it is without long sleeves or no long sleeves, and so on. So you, you get it, right? So with symbolic search, the problem is of symbolic search is that you have to explain everything in, in kind of exhaustively, right? Uh, not only that, if you start diverging from what was the query, you know, the master query that, uh, that the administrator or the domain expert has decided to be part of the database, as you start diverging from that, um, you might not find your your item anymore. So they are not really robust to similarities, okay? Not only that, uh, typos are not welcome with symbolic search. Um, you know, if you want to be robust against typos, well, probably you need to uh, perform some sort of typo correction uh, before uh, triggering the search, right? And so most of the time we create these quite 
long pipelines of uh, data transformations, of query transformations by using uh, typo correction, by using, uh, by stemming the words or lemmatizing the words and then representing, you know, uh, representing that query in an internal representation that is as much robust as possible to what I might find eventually in the database. But I think that the biggest problem of uh, symbolic search is that it's language specific. And so, you know, this is something that you definitely do not want to deal with uh, when you are, um, for instance, running an online shop that operate globally and all your items have to be uh, translated and all the queries that might find uh, your, your items must be translated in different languages. And there's absolutely no way to transfer this knowledge, you know, what you learn from one language uh, and transfer that to yet another language. So most of the time you have to start uh, literally from scratch. So what does neural search do? Or actually what can neural networks do for us? Well, due to the fact that there is this GPT-3 uh, fancy model now in the, in the, in the public domain, uh, you know, I want to shine some light on this and uh, uh, as always try to visualize things in a realistic way and also explain them in a realistic way because uh, I think that neural search is indeed a, a very powerful methodology but as all other technologies uh, there are pros and cons to uh, adopt technologies that are based uh, you know almost exclusively on neural network so let's start with um, uh, what does neural search do well the characteristic of a neural search um, model is that in fact it needs to be trained beforehand on a certain amount of data and these data are usually the queries that the model is supposed to um, uh, to transform into an internal representation and then hit the database and get the item that you're searching so such a system in fact once it is trained on uh, um, as many as many queries as possible of course uh, you know it will develop the ability to find uh, some outputs that in fact go that can match uh, not only the uh, very correlated input but also something that is you know some sort of a synonym that is close to that there is the possibility to manage um, typos and so if you are hitting if you are performing a query with uh, one or two uh, characters that are misspelled or uh, three times the spaces or some hyphen uh, characters and so on and so forth so you know there is some sort of tolerance with respect to the characters that you might miss in your query um, so that's that's a very good point um, though there is there are and there is a number of algorithms that already do these things of course not at the semantic level but at the syntactical level which is uh, for example uh, Levenstein, uh, Levenstein distance or uh, Smith Waterman algorithm. These are all algorithms that allow you to, uh, let's say, match two strings in a fuzzy way. And so, you know, whenever you want to um, measure the similarity between two strings uh, in a fuzzy way, which means that the differences can be spread uh, along the string anywhere, right? And so, you know, you don't really want to perform the traditional way of searching into a string, which is, it's not really flexible, but you would like to provide to the algorithm, with an algorithm, some sort of uh, score between 
um, these two sequences of characters that differ somewhere, somehow. Now, in terms of semantics, of course, these algorithms like the Levenstein um, uh, distance and the, the Smith-Waterman algorithm uh, definitely do not provide any um, semantic-related capability because, of course, you know, these are uh, these work at the character level or at the word level, but um, that's what neural networks can do with internal representation of words. And so this is something that we have seen um, already since years, the fact that you can use so-called embedding and uh, transform your word or your query or your paragraph or whatever form of text that you have at hand into an internal representation that is also, that is usually numeric uh, representation, so-called embedding vector or matrix, depending on the size. This is where you can capture semantics. And so this is where, in my opinion, neural search makes sense because it can scale to multiple languages. And so if you use that intermediate representation to go from one language to the other, well, that intermediate representation is supposed to stay, to be preserved across languages, right? So that's very, very important. And it, that's something that is, you know, it's unique to neural networks, right? So we have seen this happening for sequence to sequence translators, uh, from French to English to Italian, back to English to Chinese, a chair as an internal representation that is preserved across languages. And so the only thing that you are going to change, you know, network, neural network wise is uh, the last layer or the input layer, but in the internal representations and all the hidden layers um, are usually uh, preserved in terms of weights, uh, weight matrices. So this is where neural search makes sense. However, however, there is a problem. There are some problems. There are some limitations of these approaches. Uh, for example, the first is that it needs usually a lot of data. Um, and uh, because you need to pre-train these models, on something that makes sense for that particular domain. And this means that uh, before putting that neural network in production and providing you the capabilities of neural search, you need to have that particular training data set that uh, you need to feed the network with. And most of the time, you know, when you are at the beginning of your business, you don't have such data or, well, you have to manually forge these, um, these uh, potential queries that you would like the neural network to recognize. So there is a lot of manual intervention there that, you know, people are skipping usually almost all, all, all the time. And so you say, hey, neural search can be, uh, you know, it learns by itself. Yes, it learns by itself if you have data. Uh, if you have to create this data, well, that's your manual effort that you need to perform for that neural network to, uh, to go, you know, automatically. Another problem that I see with um, uh, neural networks and uh, neural search in particular is that these approaches are usually less flexible to human intervention. And so most of the time you have to trust your data. So that initial data set that you are using or considering for, you know, to feed the network and uh, uh, let it learn what will be eventually the queries that the network will recognize in production. Well, that particular training data set, that initial training data set has to be forged accordingly, right? And uh, which means that if you have some, some missing queries in there, uh, or if you have some very specific queries that the network will eventually not learn, uh, and might happen in production, well, the network probably is not going to learn. 
Or, well, it's not guaranteed that the network will learn these things. I think that, however, the most critical aspect of neural search and deep learning in particular is, um, is uh, the engineering effort that you need to uh, perform these models in production environment. Uh, usually, neural networks are uh, pretty hard to scale and, uh, and productize. And most of the time, uh, these models are much slower than you know, the string matching or the dictionary matching that you might find in, uh, in the traditional sense of searching. And so you know, there are some domains where uh, this is acceptable, some other domains where this is clearly not acceptable. Uh, and uh, most of the time, these things cannot scale, especially when you are serving a number of uh, API calls that is, uh, you know, prohibitive with respect uh, by having a neural network running in memory all the time. And so you must think about, uh, you know, some sort of uh, model compression or data compression and uh, other tricks that we know of. To conclude, when you read about GPT-3, changing the world of NLP, changing the way we look at text. Yes, it might be the case for some domains, but definitely not for others. So it's not something that uh, works across domains all the time. You might have improvements, of course, with the deep learning systems, but it really depends which domain you are speaking about, what are the limitations that these neural models might have in your particular domain. And uh, many times it is possible to have equivalent or very similar behaviors uh, that can be performed by traditional algorithms. With this, of course, I don't want to kill the enthusiasm of uh, NLP and deep learning approaches. They are amazing tools. They are amazing models out there. I just want to shine some light on this and uh, definitely keep an eye on the realistic point of view in order to kill that hype that uh, can only damage our community and our uh, field of research. I thank you again for following and listening. I renew the invitation to uh, join our Discord channel uh, where we chat about previous episodes or you can propose your next episode you would like me to speak about. You will find the links in the show notes of this episode on datascienceatom.com. Last but not least, I recently started a Twitch channel at the link twitch.tv slash codinggossip with one G and no spaces, of course. And uh, that's the place where I usually perform some um, live streaming, uh, live coding sessions. And uh, sometimes even I even speak about um, what you will find and will consume from the traditional channels of the podcast. Uh, from Apple Podcast, from uh, Spotify or Stitcher, Podbean, whatever client you are most comfortable with. I would love to see you there. That's it for today. I'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.